Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation uh, if you got your digital options and can search through there and pick what you want. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're uh, doing a four-week series called Christmas at the Movies, where we're taking movies that some of us have seen or maybe all of us have seen and using cultural stories that we already know or might know and using them as a launch pad to get to talk about what is true, either affirming what is true in the story or deconstructing things in the story that are not true. Um, we do this, of course, from the Christian perspective. So if you're new, we make no apologies that we believe this book is true. This is our true north. I didn't get any amens from the Christians on that one, but it's okay. I have an entire sermon. Uh, we'll just stay here and we won't have lunch until an amen or two occurs. That's all right. That's all right. Um, <laughs> see, if you're new, if you're new and I raise this up and say this is ultimate, for, you know, this is our, our absolute truth, you might break a sweat because you're new, right? It's, it's the regulars where I'm like, if you, didn't, if you weren't excited about that, why'd you come back? I mean... <laughs> Um, so we're going to be in a few texts today, um, because topical sermons tend to send you all around Scripture. We're going to be in Romans, we're going to be in Daniel, John, Luke. Uh, but we're, we're doing the last of, the, of these four sermons, starting with Christmas movies, um, and to, today we're going to be doing uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. In each of these four weeks, I want to bring you up to speed if you've missed a week or if you haven't been with us. We've seen a central character interacting with Christmas, and they're doing it in different ways. Uh, in week one, we saw Jack Skellington. He felt the feelings of Christmas, but he didn't understand it, so he decided to investigate. He investigated Christmas. That was his response. Uh, a week later, we talked about White Christmas. Their response to the feelings of Christmas uh, was to go ahead and celebrate something that was shallow and did not have deeper meaning. They would have told you they were fully participating in Christmas. What's wrong? Everybody's smiling. Everybody's having a good time. Um, last week, Pastor Dennis showed us that Howard Langston, he could miss Christmas altogether because he's so busy running around trying to not be a liar. He had always broken his promises to his son, and then when it was time to find this toy that his son really wanted for Christmas, there was no margin to stop and feel the peace of God, to recognize the presence of God. There's no margin for it because you're running around cleaning up your own mess. Anybody here ever missed God because you were busy trying to clean up your own mess? Hey, God, uh, that whole cross thing is nice, but I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to self-justify. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were really nice Sunday school kids, but they were trying to be good enough for God on their own, and they missed Christmas. This week... We're talking about everybody's favorite Christmas villain, the Grinch. Out of curiosity, there's no shame. I just need to know, who has never ever seen the, I believe, 1966, 22-minute long cartoon? Who's never seen the original Grinch? So we have a few Grinches out here. There's five or six Grinches who haven't seen the Grinch. Um, that's okay. That's all right. Under the bus. Okay. So I'll tell the story. The Grinch hates Christmas. 
And he lives up on this cold mountain all by himself. And you see how mean he is, and you understand why he's by himself. And all the people in the town, the who's down in Whoville, love Christmas. Everything's about Christmas down there. He hates Christmas, and it doesn't say why at first. He hates the who's because they're not aligned with his core values. That's a whole sermon unto itself. I can't just hate what you believe in. I have to end up hating you as well. I know that in the 21st century, we've never experienced that ever. So that's just a theoretical fluffy idea out there. So he decides, I just can't abide another Christmas. I've got to do something. And so he sneaks into town on Christmas Eve and steals all the presents and decorations and food, assuming that when they wake up in the morning, they're going to be sad because Christmas was ruined, and yet they gather and they sing with just as much joy as they would any other Christmas. See, this was a piece of deconstruction. Nobody deconstructed for the Grinch, hey, Christmas is not presents, Christmas is not decorations, Christmas is not food. He deconstructed himself by accident. I really think it's food and it's presents and it's all these decorations, so I'll take them away and I'll get joy in this stupid thing that I hate finally crumbling in front of my face and it'll be so happy. And instead, their joy didn't go anywhere. Somebody knows I'm preaching even though I haven't mentioned Jesus yet. Yeah, I'm preaching right now. Their joy didn't go anywhere. So the Grinch says to himself essentially, what am I gonna do with that? You see, when, when people's joy, you thought it was tied to stuff and things got terrible and the stuff was gone, the prosperity was gone, the happiness was gone and their joy is still in place, that doesn't create a problem for them, it creates a problem for me because I thought your faith was gonna crumble and it didn't. So the Grinch has a problem. He's gotta decide what to do, right? And if you know the story, they say his heart that was two sizes too small grew three sizes that day, basically has a conversion experience, even though Dr. Seuss is never gonna tell you that. <laughs> and he decides, oh my gosh, I should be kind and loving toward these people. Christmas is not bad, I was bad. And he has the strength of 10 Grinches plus two. And so he saves the sleigh from falling off of Mount Crumpet, gives all the gifts back, and participates in the Christmas feast with everyone else, and everything's lovely and everything's hunky-dory. Again, as I said week one with Jack Skellington's story, the spirit of the age now is that when I have this conviction, the rest of the world needs to conform to me. But once upon a time, we believed in absolute truth. The Grinch had to conform to a greater reality. He just couldn't see it. There was something that was true outside of him. And if you're new to church, when I say that the word of God is our North Star and it's completely perfect and without error, I have errors in the way I study it or interpret it because I'm a sinner, but it is without error. I know that that's a crazy uh, thing to say in our modern culture, but I hope that you find it oddly attractive because Christians might be the most deceived people on the face of the earth, but we have an anchor we have a foundation. If secular humanism, if atheism is completely correct, when I die, I will cease to exist, so I will have no opportunity to regret what I gave to Christ. 
If he was imaginary the whole time, I will have lived a life with meaning and purpose and joy. There will be no room for me to regret. So I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. Note takers, first blank. The Grinch hated Christmas because his heart was too small. The Grinch hated Christmas because his heart was too small. Page 937 in the hardback, black Bibles that we passed out, Romans 3 for everybody else. We're going to start off with this fun, offensive claim. Not only did Dr. Seuss make an objective truth claim about the Grinch's heart, God has made an objective truth claim about the human heart. Romans 3, starting at verse 9, going through 19. And he's quoting piecemeal a bunch of different Psalms, one section from Isaiah. This is, again, Paul, a first century pastor. Well, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Let me translate that if you're new to church. Should we conclude that people who've grown up in church their whole lives and they know the Bible verses, they know, are they fundamentally better off than somebody who was wild and out for 30 years and then they get saved? Are we fundamentally better off? Not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. Okay, so there's no judgment, there shouldn't be any judgment for the person who grew up a church kid for their brother or sister in Christ who did not grow up in church, right? Different spiritual backgrounds, but we're all, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We're all under the power of sin apart from Christ. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, The law applies to those to whom it was given. God's rules for for ethics, the law, for its purpose, the law's purpose is to keep you and me from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God, not just certain people with certain sins. Everybody is guilty before God. One of the biggest discussions right now in American culture as it relates to the church and who we are and what we believe is when you have a friend from the LGBTQ community asking you, hey, is your church affirming, right? They wanna know, does your version of Jesus going to sign on with my definition of ethics? Are you gonna call me a sinner? And, and frankly, it's, it creates a false dichotomy. There are two options that are presented that are both wrong. Like, you can just have a small, broken Jesus who's so small you can control him and tell him what he said, That's one option. Or you hate me. 
The church has a third answer straight from the scripture. Hey, I've got bad news for you. Not only you are going to hell for being gay, I'm going to hell for being straight. How many heterosexual sins are listed in the Bible? It's a long list. There are so many ways to go to hell. The, obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purposes from keeping people from having excuses and let them all know that they're accountable before God. It doesn't have to be sexual. Anybody ever been self-reliant? Anybody ever wanted something that wasn't theirs? Anybody ever disregarded rest and said, I'm just going to keep working? Anybody ever dishonored their parents? Holy cow, guys. We're 10 for 10. If we go through the, the, the 10 commandments, we're in trouble. If you're like me, you've broken all 11 of them. The problem from your friend that's saying God is not in charge on this particular ethical issue isn't that just that that would send them to hell. It's that every other disagreement with God through all of human history and all of ethics, any one of those will send you to hell too. You're toast for your perverse desire. I'm toast for my perverse de desire. She's toast for her perverse desire. All of it is offensive, a stench in the nostrils of God because he's inherently good and loving and pure. Everything that is true is defined by him, who he is, his existence. And you and I decided to have a conversation with a snake and join in a rebellion against that good and loving God. What were we thinking? Well, the scripture says we know exactly what we were thinking. We wanted to be him. We wanted his throne, or at least a counterfeit throne that was on the same elevation. And so we started telling him what he can and cannot say. The bad news of Christmas, are you ready for it? Is that we are all the Grinch. No, I'm not judging you for being a Grinch. I'm asking you to think clearly and humbly for a second and admit that you're a Grinch just like me. Let me tell you all of the Grinchiness that I have done. This is where authenticity and humility can go a long way in evangelism, huh? The reason that I don't look into the word of God, the reason I don't engage with the church, the reason I hide behind platitudes of if you don't accept what I've already sovereignly ordained, I'm not gonna participate, is that we don't want to, you know, you wanna shake a magic eight ball? Anybody shake that magic eight ball as a kid? Okay. Should I ask her out? You know, sometimes you gotta shake it a second time, get it really. <laughs> Who's in charge if I shake the ball a second time? Oh, that's brothers and sisters, that's what we call hermeneutics. That's just a fancy word for how is the Bible studied. I want the Bible to say X. Holy cow. Okay, let's come up with a slightly altered method and go to a different verse and turn it upside down and then it'll say exactly what I need it to say, right? I'll shake that eight ball over and over until I get the answer I want. We do not want to engage with God for the first time through the scriptures or the people of God. We don't even maybe want to pray and ask him, God, would you tell me what's true? Because 
we have a sneaking suspicion that this is what we're going to hear from God. Are you ready? Your soul is an appalling dump heap, overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of rubbish imaginable, mangled up, entangled up knots. Nobody wants to hear that. But Dr. Seuss made an exclusive, objective, truth claim about the Grinch's soul, and God has made exclusive, objective truth claims about our soul until and unless he changes our heart. If you're new to church, all these decorations and celebrating and tears of joy, surely there's some good news past this. Oh yeah, there is, right? Christianity would not exist if he had left us in our mess. I'll tell you a quick story. There was a man who went out to play golf and he was really terrible. He slices his first shot. It's off in the rough. And he goes to find the ball and to his amazement and good luck, the golf ball was perched perfectly on top of a four-inch tall anthill, perfectly teed up for his second shot. Oh, wow, what great luck. This is awesome. But remember, he's a bad golfer. He pulls out his seven iron. He completely misses the ball. Two inches of the four-inch anthill are now gone, and 5,000 ants died. There are 5,000 ants left. The ball is still, though, perfectly perched on top of a two-inch tall anthill. He thought, well, this is still a good opportunity. The ball was not touched. The anthill was now completely gone. 4,998 ants died. There were two ants left. And one ant says to the other, if we're going to survive this, we're going to need to get on the ball. If you love ants, if you have any compassion for the cute, tiny little creatures that clean and irrigate our earth, aerate, I should say, and if you were in this scene nearby, wouldn't the logical and loving thing to do, wouldn't it be to tell them, hey guys, you got to get out of here. This is going to go bad. He's a terrible golfer. Get out of here. But we expect God and his people to not warn us about danger. Warning is an incredibly loving behavior. We don't like it. It creates tension. It's conflict, potentially. But it's unbelievably loving behavior. God loves us so much that he has told us that our soul is a dump heap. But we so often think that when somebody tells us something bad about ourselves that they're condemning us, he's just telling us we're sick because he's about to prescribe something. You're sick, let me tell you about the blood that I shed on the cross to solve this. If you have not already 
I wanna encourage you toward this action. Would you admit to yourself, would you admit to God that you have a heart problem only he can fix? This is the beginning of a spiritual journey. In Christianity, this is the first step. God, there is something wrong, there is something broken in my heart, and you are the only one who can fix it. You are the only morally perfect God-man who died on a cross to wash away sins perfectly for billions and billions and billions of people who would believe. I cannot make myself right before God. There's no amount of good things I can do, no amount of money I could give to the church, no number of mission trips I could go on that could possibly excuse what I have already done. Admitting that you're sick is the only way the cure can be delivered. Are you guys with me? You could have the cure in your hand and you will do nothing with it if you don't believe you are sick. God has told you because he loves you that you are sick. It is called sin. It is our rebellion against him in our thoughts, our passions, our actions, our intentions. We are rebels. Join the club. Every person around you is a rebel. We're all rebels. The question is, by God's mercy, did we finally admit that we were rebels? Did we finally admit it to let Jesus save us? Second, for you note takers, the who's sang on Christmas morning even without gifts. The who's sang on Christmas morning even without gifts. Turn to page 731. Those of you who know your way around the Bible, this is Daniel chapter six. Daniel chapter six. I don't have time to work with to give you guys all of the context of what's going on, but let's just say Daniel's already, he was kind of a hero, but a lot of years have passed. The kings have changed twice. Nebuchadnezzar's long gone. The new king doesn't, I think, know the story. He doesn't seem to of who Daniel's God is. Starting at verse one, chapter six, verse one. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Wow. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in a connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. Huh. Not the most religiously tolerant group. So if you're, if you're whining right now about religious freedom issues, let me just remind you there were lion's dens. Uh, and now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed 
an official law of the Medes and Persians. It cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, are you ready for this? He went home and knelt down. What are the next two words? <laughs> As usual. In his upstairs room, with its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. If you know the rest of the story, Yahweh is about to get his glory. And Daniel did not have to change a thing. Did we notice that? Daniel didn't have to change. You know what changed? The darkness got darker. Any Christians here feel like you've witnessed the darkness getting darker? Anybody seen that happen? Anybody bemoaned it? Anybody prayed against it? Worked to fight it? The beauty of worshiping a sovereign God is when the darkness gets darker, he's just about to execute something awesome. Darkness growing, appearing to win, looking like it's going bad, that doesn't mean darkness is winning. Because as Satan plays checkers, day in and day out, God is always playing chess. As Jesus had the flesh ripped off of his back by Roman soldiers, it looked like darkness was winning. But sovereign gods don't lose. He couldn't even lose if he tried. Doesn't know how to. You're not sovereign unless you get what you want in an ultimate sense. So even through his suffering, he's going to redeem his people. He's going to get what he wants. So Daniel gets caught for worshiping God, just like he always did, gets thrown into basically a big tomb with hungry lions inside, and they rolled the stone to cover the entrance. Where have I heard of that before? Instead of Daniel being saved from death and miraculously coming out when they rolled away the stone, Jesus actually died. He did face death. He tasted it for you and he tasted it for me. And he still came out of his tomb. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Daniel was awesome, but Daniel has now spent 2,800 years in utter awe and amazement and adoration of his king in heaven. Daniel is not impressed with Daniel, Right? That's the joy of being a hero in the kingdom of God. The heroes of the kingdom of God are not impressed with themselves. They're impressed with their savior. Call to action. Don't change your praise because of your position. Your position changes, that's fine. Don't change your praise. How do your lips call out to God, praising him and thanking him like Daniel? Are you telling people of his goodness consistently, just like you did when things were good? Don't change your praise. 
Because your position changed? Circumstances changed? I'm going to keep doing my thing. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Third, the Grinch had a conversion experience. Again, Dr. Seuss didn't call it that. It just said his heart grew three sizes that day. Take a look at John 3 with me, page 883. John chapter 3. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow, he just cut to the chase right there. This guy is a Pharisee, so if you're new to church, he's really, really good at keeping the rules, really religious, knows lots of Bible verses. And Jesus, right out of the gate, said, you'll never see the kingdom of God unless you're born a second time. If that confuses you, you're in good company because Nicodemus is about to show that he's confused, okay? Verse four, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. So he's clarifying Born physically, great, but you need to be born spiritually, okay? So don't be surprised. Humans can reproduce only human life. You know what that means? You're not a Christian because you were born in Mississippi. Just saying. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Wind and Holy Spirit, this is, almost a, this is a play on words, pneuma. Holy Spirit does whatever he wants, right? Just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes or from where it's going, you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. You just know it happened. Dr. Seuss did not even try, really, to explain what happened to the Grinch. He did say that his heart was fundamentally changed. It was fundamentally changed for the better and it manifests itself in good works toward others. Sounds like a Christian salvation experience to me. But instead of Linus being really clear and explicit about what transforms and what the meaning of Christmas is, Dr. Seuss is probably trying to sell books or maybe he didn't know the answer personally and so he couldn't share the answer with us because he didn't know, Right? Maybe he just didn't know. If you're a Christian, tell someone that Jesus changed your heart. Goodness gracious, folks, we're getting sucked into this vortex where we think evangelism is me just sharing what I believe and then you disagree with something, you get offended and the conversation ends and we storm away. If I am testifying that Jesus changed me on a soul level, I'm testifying that I used to be the Grinch. That is an evangelism that is born on a platform of humility. Let me tell you how filthy I still am in some ways, but definitely how filthy I was because I wasn't just filthy, but I was also adding to my sins by trying to be good enough on my own. And now Jesus is scrubbing me down and I'm grateful. Tell someone that Jesus changed your heart. It's so inherently humble to say, I 
wanted to change my heart perhaps, but I couldn't, I didn't have that power. And I had to let God change me. And now by telling you what my experience has been and frankly how it's always been happening, I've just laid out a blueprint for you. If you want to draw near to God, here's how it's gonna happen. You're not gonna fix you. You are gonna admit brokenness, but you're not gonna fix you. You've tried that before. It's exhausting, it's disheartening. ARCF Foundation, this Christmas, you know what the greatest gift you can give? I just have to say it out loud even though you guys know the answer. I just have to say it to remind us. Give them Jesus. The verbally proclaimed message of who God became, um, became a man when he didn't have to, to suffer things he shouldn't have had to suffer, to die a death he shouldn't have had to die, to raise to life, to conquer Satan's sin and death on our behalf. That's my gift to you this Christmas. You need to know God. Fourth, a transformed Grinch made amends. A transformed Grinch made amends. He immediately took all of the gifts that he had stolen, the decorations and the food that he had stolen, and he brought them back to the Who's. He didn't just sit there and say, I've changed religions like it was this bullet-pointed list of beliefs up in my head. No, I've been transformed down to the the very bedrock of who I am, and the wrongs that I have done, I want to try to make it right. Go with me to Luke 19, and then we're going to be done right after this go-to announcement video. Page 872 in the hardback that you have, if we pass that out, Luke 19 for everyone else. Just a few pages to the left if you're still in John 3. If this passage were a single sermon, I would call it, now that person became a Christian. No, no questions about that. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus who was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was the chief tax collector in the region, so everyone loved him, and he had become very rich. If you're new, that was sarcasm. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. How does he know Zacchaeus' name? Zacchaeus, he said, Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Quick cultural translation. Hospitality was paramount in this culture. You do not break bread with sinners if you're a good and reputable person, let alone a rabbi. And he's about to break bread with the dirtiest, nastiest, filthiest dude that everybody hates in the whole city. And he's going to break bread. This is Emmanuel. This is the incarnation. God with us. You're filthy. I'm coming for you anyway. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, right? The joy makes sense now. He's been accepted by a religious leader. What what is this? I've been invited into relationship. But the people were displeased. Anybody here became a Christian, had others around you that were upset? No, you don't need to raise your hand. That's fine. But that happens. 
He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Did Jesus ask for that? It just poured out of him, didn't it? It looks like a man who's just been run over by the truck of grace. You get run over by a truck, is there evidence? We can see, oh, you got ran over by a truck. He got run over by the truck of God's mercy and God's grace, and you know what happens when that much mercy and grace get poured into my cup? My cup overflows. If my cup's not overflowing, we have a problem. Did I ever get hit by the truck of grace? Pastor Greg, you're mixing your metaphors. Yeah, I did third grade four times. You gotta be patient with me. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Did the Grinch get saved up on that mountain? I don't know. Did it manifest itself in love and grace toward other people right after? You want to say you're a Christian? Fine. An entire book of the Bible, James, exists to call baloney on your claim. The whole book of James. You say you believe in God. Well, ducky, good for you. Do you want me to clap? How do you treat the poor and the orphan and the widow? Seriously, do you want me to clap? Well, Pastor Greg, there are five important doctrinal points and then three more convictions, and I believe I sign off on all of this. Yeah, do you love others? Do I love others? Is there any objective evidence that I was transformed? I can tell you with my words that my heart grew three sizes that day, but is there any evidence that blesses you or blesses the world? Is there any evidence? Question for you. What relational repairs do you need to make this Christmas? Zacchaeus, forgiven vertically, immediately seeks to reconcile horizontally. And so did the Grinch. There's something that seems so reasonable and natural about it. Some of you were reconciled to God 40 years ago. There still might be somebody you need to reconcile with this Christmas. There might be a phone call that needs to be made or a coffee that needs to be had, an invitation that needs to be made. Because as Pastor Rhodes told us over and over, there's vertical theology. God is gracious with me. Then there's horizontal theology. I am now gracious toward everyone around me. A transformed Grinch made amends. If you're gonna say, I was the Grinch and I was transformed, then let's make some amends. Let's make some amends. And this is what it looks like. Why would he, the Grinch himself, carve the roast beast? Roast beast was a feast he couldn't stand in the least. Right? This is horizontal reconciliation. I can enter into your joy because I see things the same way as you now. I've been transformed from the inside out. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna do some announcements. Holy Spirit, I ask you to please reveal the face of Jesus Christ to us if we have never seen him before.
God, please help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your mercy and your power and your justice. And God, help us to respond with praise and adoration, maybe for the first time. God, out of your mercy, please show some of us that we hate you. We do hate you. We, we don't see it that way. We don't think we hate you, but we do. And melt the cold hearts of stone by your grace. Melt them, Holy Spirit, because you're the only one who can. And allow us to honor you with a life that is filled with joy at your lordship and leadership over us. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said, amen.